Hi, and welcome to this special podcast focused on the intersectionality of the Black Lives Matter movement and religion within the Lower Marion community. I'm your host, Jasper Longoya. In this podcast, I'll be interviewing two members of my community that can truly speak to this topic. Our first guest is Reverend Sean Lanigan, who works at St. Mary's Episcopal Church in Ardmore, which is about a mile from my house. I'm excited to hear his opinions regarding the church's role in the Black Lives Matter movement, and hoping he can shed some light on recent incidents regarding a Black Lives Matter sign vandalization. Our second guest is Dr. Hobbs, my former AP literature teacher in Lower Marion High School. In her class, we read books such as Invisible Man, Song of Solomon, and Their Eyes Were Watching God, which focused on black identity in the U.S. We connected these readings to spiritual and religious themes such as rebirth, redemption, and apocalypse. Luckily for us, she has a book coming out focused on the exact topic of the intersectionality of the Black Lives Matter movement and religion. I look forward to hearing what she has to say, informed by her experiences teaching at Lower Marion and studying literature. Before we get to our interviews, I'll share a little bit about what I know growing up in this community. To provide some basic background, Lower Marion is a very affluent suburb outside of Philadelphia, with a white majority of about 83% of the population. In terms of religion, we have a relatively high Jewish population. There is a subset of Lower Marion called Ordmore, with a higher black population in a lower income area. Unsurprisingly, the wealthiest part of Lower Marion, called Gladwin, has much less black representation. Before taking this course, I hadn't really considered the Black Lives Matter movement regarding its relationship with religion, let alone in Lower Marion. So for right now, I don't really have a strong base to ground my claims. I can speak a little to what I've observed in terms of social issues, but even that is somewhat limited. For most of my life, I've considered Lower Marion to be an inclusive community, and I think a lot of people living here would agree with that statement. I can only really think of anecdotes and less explicit forms of racism in this community. That being said, I attribute this mainly to either my ignorance or my privilege, or maybe both. So instead of asserting some bold claim about an issue I was largely unaware of, I'll I'll share a few stories that may give you a sense of what I'm talking about. I remember that in Dr. Hobbs' class, actually, when talking about personal identity, one student came forward and said something like, As a black student, teachers don't expect you to be smart. So when you prove them wrong, they're pleasantly surprised. She said an example of this was when her teacher told her she spoke well or properly or something to that effect. Dr. Hobbs related to the student with her own stories of microaggressions as a black teacher in the Lower Marion High School faculty. I was kind of surprised because I figured that sort of behavior didn't really happen in our community. I knew of a few racist kids at the high school, but I couldn't tell if that was just teenage angst or... And and I guess I also figured there would always be a few bad apples. I didn't really know what to do with that information, and I had grown up accepting this as reality, so radical change never crossed my mind. Since I wasn't exposed to the effects of anti-black racism on a daily basis, the stories and those people didn't create a lasting impact in my mind. And at least we don't see police murdering black people, right? We don't, or at least I haven't heard of anything that tragic. However, this whole podcast sort of started as a result of a surprising article I found. I was looking at racism in this community as part of a project earlier this year and saw a picture of one of my classmates at the top of the article. 
Apparently his dad was stopped by the police as part of an investigation into a robbery. Twice. Even though he was about a foot taller than the suspect and dressed entirely differently. Those kinds of mistakes and associations lead to unnecessary deaths, such as Casey Goodson's most recently, who is also not the suspect. The picture I've painted so far is disheartening, but this is a very liberal community and it has certainly shown up for black lives. There are protests and walks, and as I'll discuss later, the high school has made numerous efforts to close its achievement gap. In preparing for this podcast, I considered reaching out to young activists on various various social platforms and some of them used to be my fellow classmates. So in sharing these stories, I guess my thoughts going forward are that privilege and liberalism in this community can hide some of the issues regarding race that are more apparent in other communities. This is dangerous because, as I have said, we become blind to the issues right in front of us. Reverend Sean will join us shortly. But before that, I'll give a brief introduction about him and his church. Before joining the St. Mary's community in December 2019, Sean served for four years at St. Peter's Church in Philadelphia. Sean has worked as a high school English teacher, an academic advisor at a small liberal arts college, and a community college English instructor. He believes in the power of the gospel to transform us into people who live for others and who embody Jesus' preferential option for the poor and radical hospitality towards the dispossessed. He's an advocate for St. Mary's commitment to meaningful outreach rooted in social justice and its desire to grow in racial, socioeconomic, and generational diversity. All right, so once again, thank you for being here. Um, I'm really excited to hear your opinions. So I guess my first question is what do you think the role of your church has been regarding, you know, Black Lives Matter activism and involvement? Yeah. Well, so St. Mary's is an Episcopal church, um, pretty small one. And it's in a part of Ardmore that is right on the edge of a historically Black neighborhood. Um, There's a few um, predominantly Black churches in the neighborhoods on Baptist, Bethel, African Methodist, Episcopal. And St. Mary's over time has had, I think in the past, um, I've only been there a year, but in the past I know had a large, larger African-American population. Um, But I think there's a real sense being in the neighborhood that, that, you know, on the main line outside of Philadelphia, there's there's just, there aren't a lot of predominantly black neighborhoods. So um, as a newcomer, I had this, this sense of, um, you know, St. Mary's is sort of on the edge of the neighborhood and not quite part of the neighborhood, but, um, you know, after the murder of George Floyd, I, it just became, it felt like an obvious thing to say and, and St. Mary's is a pretty progressive place. And so I didn't even really ask for permission. I just said, we're gonna put a Black Lives Matter sign up because um, needs, you know, we have this place and we can put a sign up, so let's do it. Um, to me, it didn't feel like a very controversial statement, but apparently it is still to many people. Um, I think it was just a statement of values. Um, we wanna be in relationship with our neighbors. Um, we want to show solidarity and connection. Um, and in this pandemic moment, it's not easy. It wasn't as easy to, to gather um, as, it, as it might've been at other times. Obviously there were marches uh, in Philadelphia and elsewhere, but, um, yeah, so I mean, us putting up the banner kind of uh, it was it was fine for a few months, and then people started vandalizing it, and then that sort of started this um, series of, of vigil 
calls uh, that we had weekly uh, throughout the fall. And so, I, yeah, there was this real coming together of the interfaith community on the main line um, each week. I, I don't know if you'll ask more about that later, but I can, I think I answered the question you asked, but <laughs> you want me to say more about it? Um, well, yeah, um, I guess, I guess what that kind of reminded me of is, um, do, do you think those, those anti-Black Lives Matter, you know, vandalizations, um, do you think they were because it was a place of worship? Like, if it had been a private residence, it wouldn't have happened perhaps, or maybe were people particularly enraged that there was this religious institution that was backing Black Lives Matter movement? I think so in some ways. I mean, I think it's like, I, we definitely have gotten mail over the over the months that we had the, the banner up and um, stuff stapled to the door doors of the church, um, always trying to educate us about what, what the Black Lives Matter movement really is, which is Marxist propaganda, X, Y, Z. I'm like, well, you know, if you know anything about Jesus, he probably, you know, Jesus and Marxism aren't all that far apart in my mind in terms of Jesus' economic uh, engagement with with the poor and with just general sort of orientation toward those who are disenfranchised. So to me, Marxism isn't really a bad word. Um, but yeah, I think there there may have been particular frustration that the church was taking a stand in something that that... You know, I think some folk expect the church to not be divisive um, and to not take stands. Um, but I think, especially in this time, it seems necessary to say what we what we value and what matters to us. So, yeah, yeah, and that actually reminds me of a, a point we covered in the course, um, which is kind of that Jesus is of the of the. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but Jesus is of the standpoint of the oppressed. So there's there's kind of this faith within. Black Lives Matter movement, or maybe even the Black identity, since there's been this systematic oppression in this country. Right, right. Yeah, and I think to me, it's, you know, there was a Pew study recently that um, I think upwards of 80% of Black Americans are supportive of Black Lives Matter movement. So to me, if it's, if it's some, if an oppressed population is saying this movement speaks for me in some way, it seems incumbent upon um, people who want to stand in solidarity to say, even if this movement makes me uncomfortable in X, Y, or Z ways, right? Like I think defund the police makes a lot of people uncomfortable. They're, they say that they're against racism, but the minute you say something like defund the police, it becomes this other thing. Um, but I think that, yeah, right? When you're looking at a, popula a population that's historically experienced dramatic forms of oppression, chattel slavery, um, when they say this movement is speaking for me in some way, I think it's important to notice that and to pay attention to it and to be challenged by it and to accept the challenge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and for some of those challenges, um, relating back to religious institutions more generally, maybe not St. Mary's particularly, but how do you think other religious institutions um, kind of oppose what Black Lives Matter movement stands for and, and how is that different across religious, like the religious spectrum. Right. I mean, it's, it's interesting. I think there's a lot of sort of not so much opposition, but this, this fear of that somehow, right. It's the same all lives matter thing that we've heard all along that somehow, if you single out one group, you are disadvantaging other groups rather than when a group has been systemically oppressed, that you need to lift that, that group and the voices of people of that identity up. Um, so I think there are people who just uh, have this difficulty with any particular group being lifted up. And then there are people who act, you know, actively oppose the movement because I think equality is really threatening. Um, I think liberation is really threatening. So I think there's a whole range. I mean, um, I think not everyone, I think there are 
are a lot of people that that it makes uncomfortable, uh, but it may not be the opposition, right? So I think one of the things that I'm always trying to explore is how do you bring more people along and more people along? So when we started to, after we had the vigil at St. Mary's and like 250, 300 people showed up, we were, somebody said, we should do this next week. So we did it the next week and all the way along, I, I was pretty, I just became the de facto coordinator of it, um, of these vigils. And um, we were always calling them interfaith vigils for racial justice. Um, just to try to bring along as many people as we could. I always would say Black Lives Matter at the vigils, but um, the, I don't know, the branding, if you will, like I, I talked about racial justice because it seemed that that could bring a broader swath of folks that might otherwise come around Black Lives Matter who, yeah, couldn't dis, couldn't separate the sentiment that I think has real theological truth um, from, um, you know, a movement, an organization that they may find something um, to quibble with. Yeah, I think the, the efforts the church is making and, and that you're personally making are, are amazing. And then you, you touched on this briefly. I'm wondering if you can speak more to this, like maybe this metaphor, like if, if Black Lives Matter is like a religion, then this metaphorical conversion where, where people are either opposed or apathetic or unsure. And, and you're talking about this larger inclusivity. Um, and you said, you know, you're accomplishing such things with, with vigils and you're trying to seem as inclusive as possible. I'm wondering, is there any specific approach you could take that might be more effective or do you have any other ideas about that? Or have you, what do you think? I think what was interesting, I mean, what ended up happening was that, you know, I don't know how effective the vigils were. I, I know that in a time of quarantine and a time when people are feeling really alienated from one another, it brought people out physically in a safe way to be together um, in a really divisive election season to say something about our shared values. Um, and it brought people together who don't often do things together. So um, it's really easy sometimes to get liberal Jews and liberal Protestants together, but to also get Catholics together and to also get some more conservative Protestants together. Um, you know, some, some, there's all so many things that divide us. So I think these vigils really brought a surprising group of people together. Um, and you know, I think standing in different parts of Lower Marion with, with our signs. So the way the vigils worked is um, we would gather, we'd have an opening prayer, and then we would stand for about 30 minutes with signs. Everybody brought a sign. They said all kinds of different things. Um, and, you know, we stood along a busy road. Um, and in some ways, I feel like the most profound one was in Gladwin. I think people, you know, standing on Montgomery Avenue, which is a really busy road, it's like, eh, it's fine. The traffic's going by quickly, lots of honking. And Gladwin, it was, you know, it's a little different. Gladwin is, yeah. is one of the most upscale parts of, of Lower Marion. And um, we were near a traffic light, so cars would slow down to a stop and there were some interactions. Um, but I, I feel like this sort of mobile movement saying like, we are part of this community and and we're, um, there's just something different about putting a sign in your lawn versus standing with a sign versus talking to your neighbors while you're holding a sign. I mean, I think really interesting connections happened as a result of that. Um, and I think there's just, there is something in the religious, religious intuition says to show up, I think. There's something about embodiment and there's something about putting our bodies in a place um, that just feels to me like, like a thing religious people do. We, we put our bodies together and we, we try to do something together. Um, and that, yeah, I mean, people have said in the, in the months since we stopped, the month or so since we stopped, we did the last one, we did nine of them, just um, that they miss that community of coming together each week to, 
to, to advocate. Uh, I think a lot of people who wouldn't have driven to Philadelphia to a march came to stand at these vigils. Um, so I think it was sort of almost beginner activism for a lot of people. I think folks who, for whom something, you know, a march would have felt scarier or more intimidating. Um, something about it being rooted in faith community and something about it being in their, in their neighborhood, I think felt a little more approachable. Yeah, yeah, and I think I think some of these problems are definitely more hidden or more obscured in, in, in a more you know wealthy suburban environment. At least speaking from personal experience, I, you know, when we hear about police brutality, when we hear about racial discrimination, um, you know, oftentimes we're we're lured into this like false notion that it's it's some it's a problem of another community, right? It's an inner city problem. It's it's something else, um, and and I I've fallen victim to that exact thing and. I think I think living in this community, it's kind of hard to bring about these conversations because they're not as upfront and in your face. That being said, are there? I mean, besides that being an obvious shortcoming, what what do you what would you consider other shortcomings um, in terms of social justice within the lower Marion community itself? I don't even know shortcomings. I th I think that there's. I think that I think privilege can make it difficult to see things. I yeah. think, it, I mean, having lived in Philadelphia for four years before, I mean, I don't, I don't live in Lower Marion. I live in Drexel Hill. Um, and yeah, I think that there's just, there is an insulation, isolation, insulation. I don't know. There, it can be, it can be its own bubble, right? And it can be this place where it seems that everything is fine. And there's a lot of effort, I think, put into things seeming fine um, and that we all get along and we have the best school district and you know all of these yeah. things, right? Like it's so great. Um, that's the general feel. I feel like people want to reinforce. Um, so I, I think I think there's a desire to not see um, probably. And and so it takes extra effort maybe to see what's happening right, right in our own community. Um, and I think, so I don't know if it's shortcomings. I think it's it's just it, I think you're right that it's it seemed like it's something else. It's somewhere else, something else, some other people um, who have these problems. So, I I mean, suburban activism isn't really a thing, right? Like, I, I mean, it's, I mean, you go to the city to do that. So I think it, there is something. I mean, in some ways, at first I was like, this is lame. We're going to stand on the side of the road in our suburban community. But then I'm like, oh, actually, there's something powerful in its own way about doing this. Um, because people don't expect it. They don't expect to be going down Montgomery Avenue and see a bunch of people just standing there. Um, yeah. yeah, no, that's that's awesome. And, and you touched, I mean, this has been coming up um, within the conversation, but I was wondering if there are any other um, insights you could share working in, it was St. Peter's Church, correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah, St. Peter's Church in Philadelphia, and then working here, if there were any other contrasts that are worth talking about. Hmm. In some ways, I think that in an, in a suburban environment, there's actually more opportunity for impact. Um, I think in a city, there's so much happening all the time. There's so many people, things. It's like, where do you even start? How do you how do you as an individual make an impact in a city environment? Because there's just so much. I think in some ways, it's interesting in the suburbs. You can you can in some ways make things happen. Um, in a different way. So I've been actually pleasantly surprised. It seems in some way easier to mobilize people in the suburbs than in the city because you don't have as, it's hard to figure out what your constituency is in the city. Um, and, you know, I think one thing that, that I should note is these vigils were predominantly not people of color. I would say they're probably 80% yeah. white people, maybe even more than that. 
And so, and there was some criticism of that. Um, I think there, we did make efforts to, to engage and connect with the black churches in Lower Marion, but most of those are smaller churches. Um, and, you know, I, I think there's a lot of factors involved in that, but I think, um, yeah, I think, I guess maybe one of the downfalls is, well, what does it look like to build an interracial community um, in the suburbs? I think I think in the city, there is more opportunity to have truly inter, interracial coalitions of people doing things together. I think that becomes somewhat more difficult just demographically um, in the suburbs. And so, you know, what does it look like to be accountable to communities of color? I mean, I don't know that what we were doing in these vigils was necessarily accountable to communities of color. Um, which I think is a deeper level that's important. If, you build, if you're trying to build an ongoing movement, I think that becomes really important um, that white people aren't just doing their own thing to feel good about doing something, right? I think yeah. that's important. Um, I think the suburbs have real opportunities. I don't know. I, I think I have this feeling of like, right. Like, I mean, I, I didn't ever think I was going to live in the suburbs, to be honest. I mean, right. Like, I, you know, I'm openly gay and there's not a lot of, uh, you know, when I first, there's only, there aren't too many denominations that ordain openly gay people. And so I just assumed, oh, I'll always be serving in, a, in an urban context because that's who will want to hire a gay clergy person. So, um, you know, for me, it's also been a transition just to see myself, oh, okay, we can, we can be in the suburbs and that's fine. Yeah, yeah. Like the world's changing, so. I don't want to keep you too long. I just have just one more question. And this, this might be one of the harder ones. Um, you know, we've talked about how the you know, Black Lives Matter movement being like a all-inclusive spiritual movement, how it complements certain particular religious beliefs, whether that's um, Jesus being on the side of the oppressed or, you know, supporting those who have been oppressed. Um, but this this question kind of goes against that. And it's how, how do particular religious traditions or, you know, scripture possibly mm. counter things in the Black Lives Matter movement? Like, could religious um, institutions point to scripture and say, well, this is what makes us side with the police or this is what makes us not be sympathetic to the Black Lives Matter movement? Hmm. Hmm. I mean, that's obviously happening, right? I don't know if yeah. people are using religious texts to do it, but people are saying, oh, this leads to vandalism. Oh, this leads to this, right? Then, but I'm trying to think of like, do they ever use actual religious justifications? Yeah. I don't yeah. know. I mean, I think it's it's so much, it's like this sort of law and order justification, right? And I don't know if that has, I mean, here's the reality. You can make scripture do anything in some ways. Like you can you can make it do a lot of things if you just take smaller and smaller snippets of it um, without context and without an understanding of the audience for which it was written, it's easy to do things with scripture. I think what you're saying about Jesus and the particular, the scope of Jesus's life, um, which is, pretty darn important for the majority of Christians to understanding who God is, right? Like Jesus is the lens through which Christians say we know God. Um, I think it would be pretty hard to oppose the movement wholesale. I think there might be a way to oppose tactics, um, but I think, you know, there is a real division in American religion among liberal and conservative, right? I think when most people say Christian, they assume conservative, right? Like the word Christian tends to yeah. mean conservative, I think almost in the popular imagination. So liberal or progressive Christians are a very uh, relatively small subset that don't, um, you know, I think we, we have a different, a different worldview. So I'm, I think I'm also having a hard time imagining my way into how do people oppose this? I mean, I know people, um, <laughs> 
how does that work? Um, one of the black churches in Ardmore has a banner that says black lives have always mattered to God, um, which I just, I love that banner. It's, it's sort of like, this isn't new. Black lives have always mattered to God. And um, so I, that feels pretty true to me. Um, and you know, I, maybe some of it for me is, is having come out relatively young and leaving, I was raised Roman Catholic and leaving the church of my origin, um, finding a new home. I mean, my own journey, uh, even though I'm a white man, there's, there's some, I have some experience of oppression. And so mm-hmm. I just, I can't, I can't understand a Christianity that doesn't, isn't engaged in solidarity with people who are experiencing oppression. So <laughs> I'm not going to answer your question well. I'm, I'm sure we can find many news articles where people oppose any number of things using scriptural tidbits, but um, the whole the whole narrative of Jesus seems to me to be, I don't know, there, Catholic theology tends to talk about it as the preferential option for the poor. You could say the preferential option for the oppressed, the prefer, preferent, you know, similar to what you're saying, but I think there is a real deep liberation strain in Christianity that, that can't help, but... Um, but sympathized de- pretty deeply with with the claims of this movement. Yeah, I just, I asked that question because like, I also have a hard time kind of wrapping my head around, you know, kind of that same type of notion, like how do you, how can something inclusive and loving and spiritual be so opposed? And I, I don't get it, but I, your closing thoughts, um, any anecdotes, any additional information you think lends itself to the conversation or... I think what will be interesting is, you know, as I think about the vigils and as I think about um, just what does a racial justice movement in Lower Marion look like, um, you know, I do think about younger people. Like, what does it look like to have um, coalitions that involve high schoolers through retired folks? Because it seems to, it's, um, you know, I think there are different concerns and different issues, but I think also listening to young people and young people of color is an important part of all of this. and yet I think there's a real generational divide as much as there are every other kind of divide. Yeah. I think a generational divide is a huge piece of this and youth activism and young activism of young people. And I'm right in the middle, I'm almost 40. So sort of in between. Um, but I think that's a real question I have is what does it look like to, especially most, the vast majority of, of younger people are, are less and less religious. So this interfaith, you know, this umbrella that we've been doing this work under, I think is an umbrella that might be um, uncomfortable um, for a lot of younger people. So I, I think I just have questions about, about what does it look like to bridge the, the generational divides um, in advocating for justice. So I don't know if I have more insights, but I certainly have questions um, and uh, grateful for you to, for thinking about all these things. And uh, yeah. If you'd like to learn more about Sean's work, Go to YouTube and type in Community Conversation, Lower Marion Interfaith Racial Justice Vigils. It's on St. Mary's Episcopal Church YouTube channel. It features religious members of synagogues and churches in the local area, as well as regular members of the community. Next up, we are joined by Dr. Hobbs, but before that, I'd like to give some background on Lower Marion High School. Unsurprisingly, the wealth in Lower Marion corresponds to the level of education the students receive. The school ranked number six among college prep public high schools in Pennsylvania by Niche.com and 14th by U.S. News and World Report. Black and African-American students make up 9.6% of the student body, but consistently score lower on tests. In an op-ed by Rebecca Zimmerman, who was actually a 2014 alumna of the high school, she talks about a vast achievement gap between black students and the rest of the student body. In the article, 
it is stated that according to the most recent public statistics in 2017, less than 5% of Lower Marion High School white students tested below proficient in reading, while over 41% of black students did. Worse in math, 12% of white students did not reach proficiency, but nearly 66% of black students did not. She then acknowledges that Laura Marion has made honest efforts to fix the achievement gap. In 1997, Laura Marion formed the Committee to Address Race and Education to work on closing the gap. In 2004, Laura Marion hired 10 new black teachers in response to concerns from the black community. The district added another Achievement Imperative Task Force in 2016. However, there is still little to no change in the achievement gap data. She closes the article with this powerful statement. Lower Marion must teach its students that inequality and racism are not just problems of the city. Instead, they are systemic issues that white liberal suburbanites perpetuate. This theme of hidden suburban inequality will continue to circulate throughout the podcast. In June 2020, the president of Lower Marion High School Board, Melissa R. Gilbert, responded to police brutality and systemic racism in a letter addressed to the public. She states, We need to eradicate white supremacy and heteropatriarchy in all of our institutions. Hopefully soon, board members will find something effective that better promotes equality. I actually have a somewhat related anecdote that highlights my privilege in Lower Marion. So one of the programs designed to help black and Latino students is called Beckton Scholars. Um, it's designed to, and I quote from the website, enhance effective goal setting, study skills, time management strategies, ensuring access to a viable and challenging instructional experience that better promotes students for college and career. Anyways, I was one way or another placed in this course without really knowing what it was about. So on the first day when I walk into class, I'm literally the only white or Asian person there in a class of about 20 other kids. And I say white or Asian because, as my last name suggests, I'm half of each. Um, and so not only did I feel really out of place, but I was also hyper aware of how race had played into my privilege. Um, the teacher didn't know why I was placed in the class, and I transferred out after that day. Uh, since then, I've thought very little about the inequality in Lower Marion. I figured that this community was affluent enough to offer its students all the support, um, like Becton scholars that they needed, and so race was less of a factor. Um, but as I'm learning now, that could not be farther from the truth. Here now to share her experiences as a Lauren Marion teacher is Dr. Hobbs. Once again, thank you for being here. Thank you for taking the time. Um, so I guess the, the first question I have is just, what do you think the, the role of religion is in the Black Lives Matter movement? Wow, I mean, that's a great question, but it's a huge question yeah. um, because it depends upon one's interpretation of religion. Um, and I often respond to things like that on a personal level. And I was raised in a very religious home um, but I don't consider myself religious. I consider myself spiritual. Religion to me means that you're caught up with the rote rituals and ceremonies, and that's where you find meaning. So to answer your question, I don't know if religion has any role 
in the Black Lives Matter movement because if people are married to rules, regulations, do's and don'ts, that's problematic because that's what's causing a problem right now in race. People feel they're good people, they're bad people. There are privileged people, there are marginalized people. There are people who are right, who are wrong. Religion doesn't open up the complexity of life. Yeah. And this needs complexity now. It needs, people need to be challenged about what they value. That's, that's a great point. And actually, my, my second question was, um, how is the Black Lives Matter movement kind of like a, a spirituality? So I was, and I, I oh, yes. definitely kind of started to cover that. I don't know if you want to say more about that. Or, sure. Um, it's a spirituality because for me, spirituality means you live, breathe what you believe. Um, and life isn't put into boxes of do's and don'ts, right and wrong. Um, I believe that the spirit, well, I believe a couple of things. I believe that human beings are two in one. There's an earthly side and a spiritual side. And when we're getting in touch with our spiritual side, we're more in tune with who we really should be. And that's the spirituality. And I think if people were more in tune that they're spiritual beings here on the earth to learn more about how to be better people, then the Black Lives Matter movement would be the movement for everybody. It wouldn't even be called that, really. It would be called like the human beings movement. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And which is which is completely separate from the the so-called all lives matter movement which is uh, like yeah that's counter, totally yeah, yeah 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 that's something else <laughs> yeah something else <laughs> um so moving more specifically into literature um you know i was thinking about how your class really contributed to to my understanding of of um religion and spirituality and i was thinking about like tony morrison's song of solomon and ralph ellison's invisible man zora neale hurston's their eyes were watching god um, and the question I have is, how do spirituality and the Black identity kind of coincide in different literary pieces? Mm, that's a great question, Jasper. Um, I'm kind of old school. So an old school response would be that literature for African-Americans cannot be separate from spirituality. Um, the church used to be the hub of my community. It's where people went for peace and tranquility, understanding and their beliefs. That has slowly changed because we expected our leaders to be, I guess, superhuman, meaning flawless. And as we start to see the corruption that exists in all churches, not just the Catholic religion, which seems to get the popular media um, 
the popular media, I guess, conversation, there's corruption wherever, wherever you go. I mean, if you have human beings in a hierarchy where those that are higher up have power and those who are lower don't have power, you're going to have corruption. Um, and that's not just religion, that's schools, that's in, any kind of institution. But for my community, um, if I didn't have my spirituality, I don't know where I would be. And I think if you have a literature piece like Invisible Man or Their Eyes Were Watching God or Song of Solomon, notice all of those writers, they could not divorce themselves from spirituality because it's so much a part of identity. Um, and maybe it goes back to, you know, the slave movement, you know, having brought slaves over from the continent of Africa and being forced to assimilate in America, the only thing that you don't get taken away from you is your ability to worship however you want because you could do it and nobody would know it. You know, you can think whatever you think and nobody would know it. Um, so to me, they're totally co-joined, but I think they're slowly unraveling. I wish, I, what, what does that mean that they're slowly unraveling? Like in what meaning, way? Yeah, meaning that I think members of my community are losing their faith. Oh, they're, they're losing their spirituality. Um, which is a part of their identity, because I think seeing things like George Floyd and repeated examples of um, abuse and violence makes them question, well, is it ever going to get better? And am I ever going to be seen as a human being? And where is God in all this? And I think it's causing people to lose their faith. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's a side you don't hear about um, as much, and that's really important. Huh? Yeah, even though it's disheartening. Yes. Um, so talking about literature, talking about um, other examples, I remember in our email correspondence, you you mentioned that you had your own book coming out. Is that true? Yes, yes, I'm really excited, Jasper. Um, it's going through the very brutal editing stage where. Um, the publishers are fact checking because I have so much immersed in there and you know, they don't want a lawsuit. So they're doing a lot with that. And I just heard from the publisher that they're hoping that the manuscript will be ready for publication um, by January 4th. And um, my piece is called Lucifer and the school teacher colon the trauma and healing of racism in American education. So I'm really excited about it because it's basically about the wounds that I personally have suffered as both a student as well as a professional teacher. And I deal with racism within my community and without my community, because I've experienced both. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm wondering if there's anything, I mean, that's a pretty good description, but is there anything more that would speak to sort of this more spiritual aspect or this more religious oh aspect? Oh my gosh, yes. 
The whole foundation, it's funny you ask. I said to myself, I can't believe he contacted me on this. My whole foundation is spiritual. So the book opens up with a scripture and there are scriptures threaded throughout um, because I think growing up, I had, you know, formal training. I went to Sunday school. I went to church. I did all the right things and I memorized all the right Bible verses, but I don't know, honestly, if I ever thought about what they meant. Um, I could rattle off scriptures like the best of them. I could be in a contest and probably win. But with, with if someone asked me, okay, well, what does that mean in terms of life itself? I probably would be baffled. Like, I don't know. I know how to rattle off the memorization of it, but I'm not sure. And it's only after I've gone through pain and suffering that I start recalling scriptures and I say to myself, oh, that's what that means. And when I think of the Black Lives Matter movement um, and the police officer who had his knee on George Floyd's neck, um, when I first saw that, I lost it. I really lost it. Physically, emotionally, spiritually, I was broken. And I became so angry, Jasper, that it actually scared me. Um, I said to myself, I don't know where this anger, and I started to really go into a place of hate, and that's not me. Um, eventually, I had an awareness, an epiphany, which I talk about in the book, and one of the things that is a powerful scripture is that no one is greater or lesser than another. Now, when you look at George Floyd's situation, of course, people would say, of course she identifies with George Floyd, but I started to identify with Chauvin too, because he's a human being. He has certain actions and beliefs based upon something that happened in his life. And I'm not sure what happened in his life, but I think all of us are victims of trauma. And if our trauma is not healed, you're gonna see things like what you saw with George Floyd. And if I truly believe that scripture, then I know that Chauvin, that officer, is just of much value as George Floyd, that I'm supposed to love him just as much as I love Floyd. And that was a rude awakening for me. Um, people that do horrible things, there's a reason for it. And I'm trying to separate the person from the act mm. because I don't believe that Chauvin is truly who he demonstrates himself to be. I, I, I truly believe that. I don't think he is that horrible. Something happened to us in his life to make him do what he did. But I'm supposed to love him just as much as George Floyd. Yeah, that's, that's a very mature way to think about it, um, which, which made me think of something else that was brought up in our course, which is that um, we, we watched a sermon given by 
somebody who was who was pro blue lives um, and, and pro authority, mm-hmm. and he was preaching forgiveness. And then in the class discussion, where we talked about who exactly is deserving of forgiveness, forgiveness, and in, in, in whose eyes, mm-hmm. um, which is which is kind of what your sort of meta awareness and forgiveness reminded me of. Absolutely, absolutely. And guess what? We all need it because yeah. none of us are none of us are perfect. And my interpretation was that your forgiveness is sort of all encompassing, but, you know, I see other people who preach forgiveness and theirs is very targeted and and very hypocritical. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the problem. This is, this is why I think people are resigning off of their faith and spirituality. Um, To give you a classic example, I remember as a kid, sitting in the middle of a sermon and a homeless person came into the congregation and was disrupting church service. The way that person was treated left an indelible mark in my mind because I thought we're supposed to be loving of people. And if anybody needs love, it would be a homeless person who needs food and shelter and comfort and understanding and patience. He got none of that. Um, The deacons got up and wrestled him to the ground as if he were a common criminal and threw him out of the church doors. I'm like, why would they do that? It just doesn't make sense to me. Yeah. Um, Moving into more of the Lower Marion community, and Lower Main High School, I was wondering what what your experience has been like there. I remember vaguely talking about um, in, in your class how the Lower Marion faculty are not as open-minded or as inclusive as like I would have thought, for example, considering, you know, this is like a pretty progressive neighborhood and so on and so forth. But I was wondering if you could speak to any of that. Absolutely. Um, And I think what's interesting is that the Lower Marion community is extremely progressive, but the teachers don't come from that community. See, you don't have to live in Lower Marion to be a Lower Marion teacher. So my colleagues come from a rural area, they come from the city, they come from a lot of different environments. And because they come from different environments, they bring with them their experiences, their values, and their understandings. And it's very easy when you're hired, no matter what community you're in, to know how to play the game. You know what to say so that you don't get on the radar. You know how to act so that you can assimilate and not be looked at as different. And I think a lot of adults that they hire have learned the Lower Marion way and they suppress, or at least they've learned how to suppress how they really feel. And so therefore they come off in the classroom as being progressive. 
when in fact they aren't. It's what you call playing the game. Mm-hmm. And I get access to my colleagues when they're not playing the game because I'm hearing them in the lunchroom or in the faculty lounges, or I'm at faculty meetings with them and I hear their side conversations. And that's the side that students don't see. You see the game face because they're in front of you and it's a performance. But I see them when they're not performing and some of their beliefs are are jarring. Yeah. That, I guess that is something the students don't really see. And that makes a lot of sense too. Mm-hmm. Um, that's kind of, that's extremely unfortunate, but is, is, and I guess you're saying that's not quite representative of the lower Marion community because they come from these other places. Absolutely. So, Absolutely. Well, I think the lower Marion community itself is incredibly progressive um, and welcoming and compassionate, at least I have felt welcomed. Um, I've had some incidents and, and some run-ins, um, but I think I probably would have encountered those same kind of incidents and run-ins in another place. They might be packaged a little differently. The details might be different. The players might be different, but the themes are always the same. Um, and I, I will say that when I've been going through some personal issues, like when I went through my divorce, the Lower Marion community was like no other. I had parents sending me flowers to my home. I had gifts at my door. I had all kinds of open arms of love and a lot of humorous situations. I I remember some of the Lower Marion women who were moms and one mom was hysterical. She's like, oh my goodness, Deborah, I've been divorced five times. You'll be all right. (laughs) You'll get over it. She said, "Uh, you'll just be moving up the ladder. Get somebody with more money next time. (laughs) So it's it's been wonderful for me. It really has. It has taught me a lot. I have learned so much. So yeah, I have nothing negative to say about LM. The community itself. Gotcha. Yeah, I was. Um, I had an interview with with one of the reverends at um, St. Mary's Episcopal Church, uh-huh. and we were trying to think of um, shortcomings of the Lower Marion community. And I guess the one thing we agreed on was that yes, it's progressive, but if there's anything that's that's different about it, it's that these sort of everyday racial injustice problems are kind of obscured by the fact that a lot of people in Lower Marion think, well, that type of stuff just doesn't happen here because we are so progressive. Right. That is, that is something very dangerous. It is dangerous because you know what? Not everybody knows what racism is. I mean, it's actually starting to break open now that people realize the term institutionalized racism Mm -hmm. is starting to have meaning. When members of my community would talk about it five, 10 years ago, people were like, oh, come on, you can vote. 
you know, you can just work hard. You can become a doctor, a lawyer. You can do anything you want with your life. What are you talking about? Institutionalized racism. That doesn't exist. Well, now people understand what that means. So, yeah. Yeah, it is. It is starting to definitely starting to break open. And at this course, um, it actually taught me a lot. I mean, there are certain things that I really hadn't considered, mm. um, you know, people always said there are modern forms of slavery. And I was like, okay, maybe that's a little bit of an exaggeration, but it, it's true. I mean, it's true. There, yeah. I mean, the, the, the school, the prison pipeline system is just an example of that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So there, there are definite, definitely um, institutionalized forms of racism that are, that are very much a problem in, in the U.S. Um, mm-hmm. On maybe more of a positive note, kind of wrapping this up, what do you envision bringing about lasting change in social justice? What's, what's the best way to remedy these types of problems? Love. And I know it's corny and I know it sounds terribly simple, but loving someone is not as easy as people think. Um, it's very easy to love another person who loves you back. That's easy, right? I mean, it doesn't require an extreme amount of effort. Loving someone who doesn't love you is where change is going to take place. I, as an African-American, have to love people who actually hate me. Um, and that goes back to scripture too. Um, that's not easy to do, but guess what? That's what we're required to do. And I think if more of us did that, those who hate and dislike other folks will start to step back and say, wait a minute, maybe all the things that I thought and learned about these people aren't right. Because no matter what I do to them, they still treat me decently and kindly and lovingly. That I think will move the world. But that's the hardest thing for any of us to do. Definitely, definitely. Yeah. Um. Are there any other closing thoughts or anecdotes that lend themselves to this conversation? Anything I missed? No, I think you were very thorough. Um, and that's that's pretty much it for me. Okay, well, so just wrapping up the interview section, I just wanna say thank you. This was really an honor and you definitely have a lot of insight to share. I feel it's a privilege that you even thought of me to even reach out and ask me some questions. I feel very, very honored and privileged and I thank you for that. Very powerful words from Dr. Hobbs. If you'd like to educate yourself more on institutionalized racism, she suggests watching When They See Us and 13th by Ava DuVernay. Again, her book is titled Lucifer and the School Teacher, The Trauma and Healing of Racism in American Education, and will be coming out in early January. Drifting. 
I guess in my closing thoughts, I would first like to reflect on my community, and second reflect on how religion is evolving with regards to social issues. In Lower Marion, we are fortunate enough to have an inclusive and active community, but the privilege we observe here must not blind us to the issues in other communities, but more importantly, it must not blind us to our own shortcomings. I think Reverend Lanigan's vigils remind us of both the good we can bring about and those who will disagree with us in the community. I agree with both Reverend Lanigan and Dr. Hobbs that religion as an institution cannot and will not guide the Black Lives Matter movement. It can serve as a personal foundation from which to build your principles, as both interviewees talked about, but ultimately those principles are framed by your own experiences, irrespective of religion. However, thinking about the Black Lives Matter movement as more of a spirituality and less of a religion has real legitimacy. There is something intrinsic in human spirituality that recognizes suffering and oppression and tries to ameliorate it. I think as much as some people want to label the Black Lives Matter movement as hateful, it will without exception be built from love and equality. I'd like to thank our interviewees, Sean Lanigan and Deborah Hobbs, for giving their thoughts and sharing their own experiences. The song from this podcast is called Drifting, and was written and produced by two Lower Marion graduates and friends of mine, Lonnie Davis and Cole Sanchez. Lastly, I'd like to thank Professor Davenport, who challenged me to create this podcast and push my boundaries.